0: Uh, to our God and Father. So please turn now with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. This morning we will be considering uh, considering together an introduction to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments which are a summary or an exposition of the law of God law of God that binds our consciences in this age. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word to us this morning. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 6 days you shall labor and do all your work, but the 7th day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbors. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, please turn with me also in your order of worship to the confessional reading element. This morning we are reciting together the first half of Lord's Day 34, which consists of question and answers 92 and 93. And actually, we're just going to be reciting together question and answer 93. As you can see, question and answer 92 is a recitation of the Ten Commandments. So question 92 asks, what is God's law? And then it it quotes the Ten Commandments from um, Exodus 20. And so since we already read the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20, we are going to just be reciting question and answer 93. As always, I will read the question, if you'd please respond by reciting the answer. How are these commandments divided? Into two tables. The first has four commandments, teaching us how we should live in relation to God. The second has six commandments, teaching us what we owe our neighbor All right, well, boys and girls, uh, what are the, our three main sections of the catechism? Isaiah? Guilt, grace, and gratitude. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. Very good. Um, now, this really will be jogging your memory, but do you remember, uh, where, where did we come to know of our misery? Where do we come to know of our misery, our sin? Annabelle? The law, the law. The law of God tells us. And where did our sin come from? Isaiah? Satan, uh, he's definitely connected uh, w- with our sin. Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve right? Uh, because of Adam and Eve's sin, we all inherited that corrupt nature. And because we are sinners, um, God is going to judge our sin in time and in eternity. Uh, God's justice says that if we have sinned against his supreme majesty, we deserve a supreme penalty, so that's really the guilt section. Now, uh, what is what is true faith? True faith is is what we are to res- uh, how we are to respond to uh, God's grace in the gospel. Yes. Knowledge assent and trust. Knowledge assent and trust. What is the content of this faith? Noel. Apostles', Apostles Creed. Creed. And what is the benefit of, of professing this faith? Isaiah. Christ righteousness. Christ's righteousness. Where does this faith come from? Yes, Marcus? The preaching, of the, gospel. the preaching of the gospel. And who creates faith in our hearts through the preaching of the gospel, Noel? The, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit uses something else to assure us and confirm our faith. What does he use? That's Matthias. The of and? The sacraments. sacraments. The sacraments. Now, what are the two keys of the kingdom? Two keys of the kingdom. Ezekiel? Church discipline and the preaching of the Word. Yes, church discipline and the preaching of the Word. Another way to think of the keys of the kingdom is that God has given the church the authority to affirm and disaffirm a profession of faith. So again, faith is very, very important when we consider the, the, the catechism. Now, summarize the last two weeks, why, what's, what's a motivation for why we should do good works? Why should we do good works? Annabelle? Out of gratitude, yes, which is why that third section is labeled gratitude. Now, last week we considered what what true repentance or genuine repentance and conversion consists of. Do you guys remember what are those two aspects of this life of sanctification? Ezekiel? Yes, right, so putting to death that old man, which, yeah, looks like hating, turning away from it, and then making alive this new man as we delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. So it's death and resurrection, putting off and putting on. That's what the Christian life looks like. So, again, to summarize the last couple of weeks, we have considered that we are to be motivated to live a life of obedience out of gratitude for what God has done for us in the gospel. And these good works, these good works that are to be done out of gratitude, are to conform to God's law. So last week we considered that definition of a good work. It needs to proceed from true faith. It needs to conform to the law of God. And it needs to be done unto the glory of God. Which is why now the Catechism turns to consider an exposition of the law of God from the Ten Commandments. Now, one of the marks of, of, of living in a, in a secular age is that society justifies their morality not by an external authority, but by what they feel is right. So they justify their morality not by an external authority, but by what they feel is right. Now, oftentimes, we as Christians can adopt the, the spirit of the age, and I think many um, Many Christians today have undoubtedly adopted this spirit that marks the secular West. Like most people, would, by how they live and by what they would say, would not define a good work as question and answer 91 defines a good work. Rather, good works are really those things that proceed from true faith and conform with what we feel is right. How often do we hear the verbiage of, I just really feel that the Lord is leading me to do this or that. Or God's telling me that I need to do this. Or uh, I just have this feeling about this certain situation or, or course of action. And it doesn't really matter what God's word says. And sometimes God's word might actually say the opposite. But if we have this burning in the bosom that we think is coming from the spirit, that's definitive. And so we need to be very careful that we don't elevate our feelings above God's explicit revealed law. And so we see here that our good works are to conform to the law of God as expressed in the Ten Commandments. So we should be very interested in what does the God's, God's law actually say? God tells us how we are to express our gratitude. He doesn't leave it up to our emotions or our feelings or our imagination. He tells us how we are to express our gratitude for what he has done for us in the gospel. And so this morning we are going to look at just an introduction to the Ten Commandments. In the coming weeks then, we'll be looking at each commandment in turn and, see, and we'll see how each commandment applies to us and our, our Christian lives. So the three things that I want us to look at uh, this morning, is we'll look at how the Ten Commandments are an exposition of the moral law of God. We'll look at the division, the divisions of the Ten Commandments, and then lastly, we'll look at how the Ten Commandments give us the destination of our moral lives. So, first, the Ten Commandments are an exposition of, of the moral law. Now, theologians throughout the history of the church have recognized that there are different types of laws in Scripture. And theologians have landed on on basically three three types of laws, three categories, uh, by which every law can be uh, subsumed under. So the first category of laws are sacrificial or ceremonial laws. So these are the laws that governed Israel's uh, temple system. You read about many of these laws in Leviticus, laws that govern animal sacrifices and the conduct of priests and the ritual system. You also have civil laws. These are the laws that governed the people of Israel as a political nation. They're civil laws. The last category of laws are uh, moral laws. And these are the laws that we read about both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And these are the laws that are are transcendent. They, they, They bind all people in all times and places. The Old Testament civil laws and the Old Testament sacrificial laws were, were kind of like you know, the wrapper on a candy bar. <laughs> They're useful for a time. You don't want, when you go to the store and pick out a candy bar, you, you don't want the candy bar that's unwrapped. You want the one that's wrapped. But once you, you open up the candy bar, you throw that wrapper in the trash. It served its purpose. And so the sacrificial laws, the civil laws were good for, for a time, but God never intended them to be permanent. Christ fulfilled them and set them aside, but the moral law of God, yes, is also fulfilled by Christ, but he fulfilled in such a way that still is binding upon us today who live after the coming of Christ. And so the reason why we place such an emphasis on the Ten Commandments as opposed to a lot of the other sacrificial or civil laws of the Old Testament is because the Ten Commandments are primarily an exposition of the moral law of God which means that they directly apply to us and bind our consciences. Now, we also see aspects of the moral law of God in the New Testament. We come across many imperatives or commands in the epistles for how we should live as members of the church as those who've been redeemed by Christ. And I've said this before, but we should think of the New Testament imperatives as coming forth from the soil of the Ten Commandments. This is why in the reading of the law in our first service, many times I'll read from a a particular commandment from the Ten Commandments, and then we'll also read an exposition from an epistle to see how the New Testament is applying that commandment. The New Testament imperatives... Uh, spring forth from the soil of the Ten Commandments. We see Paul doing this all all the time. This morning we we looked at the Eighth Commandment. You shall not steal, but positively work hard. And Paul applies that to the church in Thessalonica and for those who are are idle, who are busybodies. And he urges them to work and follow his own example uh, of working for one's own living. We see Paul doing this in Ephesians chapter 4 when he says, again related to the Eighth Commandment, let the thief no longer steal, but also let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, that he might be able to help the poor in their need. And Paul is consciously thinking of the Eighth Commandment and applying it to the church in Ephesus. He does the same thing with the Ninth Commandment. You shall not bear false witness, and he says, Let us speak truth to one another, for we are members of the same body. Paul, again, is thinking of that Ninth Commandment and applies it In a new covenant context, and says that, well, the reason why we are to speak truth to each other is because we have this bond that's everlasting. We're members of the body of Christ. He goes on and says, Let no corrupting talk come in your mouth, but only such as good as uh, that, only such as it builds up as fits the occasion that gives grace to those who hear. So again, Paul repeatedly and the other apostles take the Ten Commandments and apply them in the lives of these New Covenant Christians. So we should see the Ten Commandments as being the soil from which the New Testament imperatives spring forth. Now, when we read the Ten Commandments, of course, the Ten Commandments speak explicitly to external conduct. You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. However, we should know that these commandments also implicitly speak to the inward dispositions of our hearts. So when the Sixth Commandment says you shall not murder, God also is forbidding anger of the heart. When the Seventh Commandment says you shall not commit adultery, he, God's also forbidding lust in our hearts, and so on and so forth. So the Ten Commandments don't only speak to our external conduct, they also speak to the inward disposition of, of our hearts. This is what Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount. Furthermore, when we come across a negative prohibition, for, for instance, you shall not murder, or you shall not commit adultery, or uh, you shall not steal, the positive action is also implied. You shall not murder. Well, positively, you are to promote life. You shall not commit adultery. Positively, you shall uh, be faithful within the confines of marriage. You shall pursue purity. You shall not steal. You shall work hard and be generous. And so if there's a negative prohibition, The positive is implied. If there's a positive uh, course of conduct that we are being called to, the negative prohibition is being implied as well. Sanctify the Lord's Day. Honor the the Sabbath Day. Well, implicitly, we are called not to profane the Sabbath Day. We are not to treat the Sabbath Day as, as ordinary. And so both the positive and negative aspects of the commandment are present in these ten words. And so, these Ten Commandments are are an exposition of the moral law of God. Now, in question answer 93, we see the divisions, are the division of the Ten Commandments. Um, So, what are the two main divisions of these Ten Commandments? In question answer 93... God and neighbor, right? And so, love for God, which commandments fall under the, the category of love for God? Verse 4, right? And then, what, well, then the last six, of course, fall under the category of love for neighbor. Jesus summarizes the Ten Commandments in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40. When he says, you shall love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. In fact, our catechism quoted this back in question answer 3. When it says, from where do you know your misery? Well, the law of God tells me. What is the law of God? And at that time in the catechism, uh, the catechism just recites Jesus' summary of the Ten Commandments. But he's really speaking to the same moral revelation that comes to us from Scripture in these ten words. Now, both of these aspects, both Jesus' summary of these ten words and the Ten Commandments themselves are mutually beneficial. It's helpful, right? It's helpful for us to be able to summarize our our task in this life is love for God, love for neighbor. However, it's also very helpful to have the Ten Commandments which add specificity to what it means to love God and what it means to love our neighbor. You know, most people would get on board when it comes to this, this, this call to love God. But for most people, they, they sort of define for themselves what it means to love God. And oftentimes it feels very abstract. What does it mean to love God practically? Practically. What does it mean to love God? And so it's helpful to look to the first four commandments because the first four commandments give us specific ways in which we can love God. We love God by worshiping Him alone as He has told us to worship Him in His Word. That's what the first two commandments tell us, which by implication means one of the main ways in which you love God is by being a committed member of a local church that preaches the gospel, administers the sacraments, and exercises church discipline. That's pretty practical. We also love God by honoring the Lord's day and honoring the Lord's name. The third, or flip those, honoring the Lord's na- uh, name and honoring the Lord's day, the third and fourth commandments. Again, pretty practical. We treat the Lord's day as as distinct, set apart from the other six days, and we speak reverently about God's name and his works of providence in this life, which means that we don't grumble and we, we don't complain. We are thankful during times of adversity and during times of prosperity. Again, these are pretty practical ways in which we love the Lord our God. Consequently, how do we love our neighbor? Well, we honor the authority structures that exist within our life, and we all are placed within uh, within, uh, 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 within various authority structures that we are called to honor within the home, within the workplace, within society at large. And we are called to honor the, these authority structures. We are called to promote life. Seek the well-being of our neighbor. Uh, we are called to uh, pursue purity. We are called to work hard. We're called to speak truthfulness that builds uh, people up. We're called to fight covetousness And be content. These are the ways in which we love our neighbor. Again, it has that specificity that is really helpful for us in in our Christian lives. So the Ten Commandments are an exposition of the moral law. And the two divisions of these Ten Commandments are love for God and love for neighbor. The first four of which speak to our love of God. And the last six speak to our love of neighbor. Well, the Ten Commandments as an exposition of the moral law also tell us what our destination should be for our moral lives. Now, I've, I've given this illustration for you in various other contexts, and I think it's helpful. But before, uh, before I do so, remember that back in question answer three, already, we've already alluded to this, that one of the purposes of the law of God is to convince us of our sin and misery. From where do you know your misery, the law of God tells me. So one of the purposes of the Ten Commandments is to show us that we can't keep them we already looked at that back in question answer three. But another use of God's law is to guide our Christian lives. To show us how we can express our gratitude to him. And so if that first use of the law, which convinces us of our sin and misery, is like a mirror, well then this other use of the law, the third use of the law, is like a lamp. It illuminates our path. That's why David, in Psalm 119, refers to God's law as a lamp unto his feet. It illuminates and guides him as he seeks to uh, love the Lord his God. So, as we look at these Ten Commandments, we're primarily looking at them as a guide for the Christian life. And so, we are looking at these Ten Commandments in a distinctively Christian way, or, or as they apply to us as Christians, which again tells us that the fear of punishment and the promise of maintaining our salvation are not credible motivations. We do not seek to obey these Ten Commandments because we fear if we mess up we're going to be punished by God, or we think that we're going to lose our salvation, or uh, fall out of God's good graces. Again, we are considering these things as those who have been definitively saved through that gospel, and will be preserved through that gospel. The threats and the curses of God's law have been removed for us as Christians. So we hear God's law for what it is, stripped of the threats and the curses. So this is how we consider the law of God as Christians, as a guide for our Christian lives. Now, as I mentioned, the law also serves sort of as a map, meaning it describes, it details for us where our destination is, where our moral destination is. And again, I've, I've used this illustration before, but I do think it's helpful for us to, to think through these Ten Commandments in this way. So imagine, again, you're going hiking. Imagine you're, you're uh, summiting a mountain, as um, one of us in here has, has done before, at least one of us here has done before. Um, you know, you have your destination in mind. You know where you're going, a particular point or a top of a mountain. Uh, but oftentimes, there are multiple paths you can take to get to that destination, So you have to decide which path are you going to take to reach that destination. You could take a variety of different paths, which will all get you at that destination. Well, we should see the Ten Commandments as describing for us the the destination of the moral life, the top of that mountain. However, the law of God does not tell us what path we should take to pursue that destination. There are many paths that we can take to pursue Uh, the destination of the moral life. All that the Ten Commandments and the other New Testament imperatives are doing is describing for us our destination, and we are to be headed towards that destination. But it doesn't tell us exactly what path we should choose to pursue that destination. The, the, The decision over what path to choose, that's the realm of Christian freedom and the realm of wisdom. Wisdom is the subjective perception of what is the most effective path in pursuit of the destination of the moral life. So, wisdom is that subjective perception of what the most effective path is in pursuit of the destination of the moral life. So, again, imagine to use an example, you know, I would imagine that most Christian parents are on board with the Imperative in the New Testament that uh, we are to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That's describing the destination of the moral life when it comes to parenting. I would imagine there's a lot of unity when it comes to, to, to that. However, when you think about the issue of educating our children, many parents pursue the end of that law by taking different paths. Some choose the path of homeschooling. Some choose the path of Christian day school. Some even choose the path of public schools with supplementation at home and discussions at home. But no matter what option you choose for your child's education, you're still pursuing, arguably, the destination of raising your children if you're an admonition of the Lord. God's word does not tell us how to educate our children. You'll search in vain to find a chapter and verse that says homeschooling, Christian day schools, or some other option is the only way that you can educate your children. Now, we can debate amongst ourselves which option is is the wisest option. Those are good discussions to have. But we need to be clear that we're discussing something in the realm of Christian freedom that's a matter of wisdom and is not contained explicitly in God's law. And we could do this with all of the commandments of God. There's what God's law explicitly says, and we are called to be headed towards that destination. But we might come land on different paths. We might think that one path is more effective than another path, and we can have those discussions. But we have to realize that that's a matter of wisdom. That's a matter of Christian freedom. It's, it's not clearly and explicitly revealed in God's law. You know, again, we're called to promote the sanctity of life. But scripture does not tell us what political policies to pursue, what candidates to vote for, or what parties to support. That's a a path issue. Our consciences are bound to promoting the sanctity of life, but it doesn't tell us exactly what path we should pursue uh, to, to arrive at that destination. Or think of the seventh commandment. We're called to love our spouse. That's sort of the positive aspect. Be pure, love our spouse. Well, if we did a survey in this room. We all love our spouse in slightly different ways, which means we all slightly take a different path in the pursuit of that command of loving our spouse. So it's very important that we make that delineation between what God's law actually says and what is the realm of Christian freedom. And the church has the authority to bind consciences when it comes to God's law. I have the authority by God as an ordained minister of the gospel to bind your consciences with the Ten Commandments. But I have no business binding your conscience in what path you decide to choose in pursuit of the end of God's law. I can have discussions with you, ask pertinent questions, but I can't bind your conscience in terms of of how you pursue the ends of God's law. That's a matter of, of, of wisdom and Christian freedom. This is very important that the church, ministers, elders, recognize this distinction as well. Uh, God's law is explicit. It does speak to many areas of life, but it also leaves the category open for Christian freedom. And you, as Christians who have the spirit, are called to take uh, this this call to, to exercise wisdom seriously. It's hard trying to figure out what is the most effective path given my situation, my context in life. In fact, one of the main ways that you can come alongside other people who are trying to navigate uh, big decisions in life is by listening and asking questions. If we're honest with ourselves, when, when someone's you know, trying to think through big decisions in life, let's say it's a job move or a relocation, Um, the selling of a house, whatever, or something like that, usually the person is not ignorant of what God's word says on the issue. Rather, they're wrestling with what is the most effective path. What is the wisest option? And that's where listening and asking questions, getting to know the particularities of that person's context will make you a better counselor when it comes to helping that person choose the most effective path in pursuit of God's law. Because when you're thinking about relocation, What you're thinking through is is how can I best fulfill the responsibilities that God has given me? It's not a black and white issue. We're looking at what's the wisest option. As we continue to think about the Ten Commandments and morality in this life, we see that that life in this age is morally complex. There are very 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 few things that we struggle with are, are explicitly black and white. Things are complex. And recognizing the complexity of the moral life is not embracing moral relativism, rather it's an act of humility, that things really are complex, it's an acknowledgement of reality in this age, in this veil of tears. And one one of the benefits of actually reading good literature, and at times even watching good cinema, is it gives you a bigger view and glimpse into the moral complexity of this life. As you're let into the the inward struggle of characters and they're trying to navigate weighty issues, it helps you uh, empathize with others with regard to trying to live wise lives in this age. And so we are called to pursue wisdom. And this is a difficult task, it requires encountering many different situations and making many errors. Uh, but it's imperative that we know and internalize well God's explicit law. We need to know where we're headed because there are times we're headed in the completely wrong direction and we need to stop and turn around and go the other way. And so we need to know well the top of the mountain, where we're going, which is expressed for us in these 10 words. Well, as I said before, uh, the coming weeks, we are going to look at each one of these commandments in, in detail and, and consider how they not only convince us of our sin, but also how they guide and instruct us in our Christian lives of gratitude in response to that gospel message. So